Imagine, you have a friend who seemed off lately. She stopped drinking alcohol. She fasts all the time. Her skin recently turned paper thin and yellow. Her eyes seem glazed over. They don't track like they used to. One day she invites you to a church service and you agree to go. You're glad she reached out. It'll be a chance to reconnect. She picks you up late, 11 p.m., and takes you to a house on the outskirts of town, just down the river from St. Petersburg. But you don't enter the main door. In the dark, you venture around back, where an open cellar emits a golden glow. Your friend's face lights up. She looks more alive than you've seen her in weeks. She grabs your hand, and you descend the stone steps together. Inside, it's warm, windowless, and lit by kerosene lamps. Ten, maybe twenty people mingle about. In the center of the room stands a man with a long black coat. His hair and beard are unkempt. His eyes seem to glow. Everyone orbits around him like planets around the sun. You find yourself walking towards him when the ceremony starts. Before you know it, you're whirling arm in arm in a circle. People throw back their heads and laugh. The room spins faster and faster as you begin to grow sick. As your vision darkens at the edges, you suddenly realize this must be a Clist meeting. You've heard about these groups. They spin in circles until they give themselves hallucinations. They have orgies, and it's said... They eat babies or volunteer their own flesh as a sacrament. You start to panic. The clists twirl around the man in the black coat, and suddenly you realize who he is. Grigory Rasputin. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Unexplained Mysteries for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Unexplained Mysteries in the search bar. This is our final episode on Grigory Rasputin, the most talked about man in Russia at the turn of the 20th century. Last episode, we discussed how, against all odds, the Siberian peasant climbed Russia's social ladder. He won the hearts of the country's monarchy and the ire of most everyone else. This episode, we'll examine a number of theories that attempt to explain Rasputin's miraculous life. From illicit affairs to mind control, salacious rumors followed Rasputin everywhere he went and accompanied him to an early grave. That is, if he actually died. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. 
Rasputin first introduced himself to the Russian monarchy sometime around 1905. A decade later, the Tsar and Tsarina's relationship with the eccentric mystic resulted in the imperial Russian version of a PR nightmare. On March 2, 1910, the Moscow Gazette published an article called The Spiritual Touring Actor Grigory Rasputin. It portrayed him as a religious fraud and a lecherous womanizer. It also claimed he was a member of the Clists. The Clists were an underground religious sect, a distant offshoot of Christianity. In a nutshell, they believed that a person reached God through a seemingly contradictory intersection of extreme asceticism and sin. The sin often took the form of sexual pleasure. The Clists were also rumored to be cannibals with a particular appetite for young children. Luckily, historians have determined that this bit of gossip was unfounded. As for Rasputin's participation in the group, the Russian Orthodox Church performed five separate investigations to try to find out if Rasputin was a Clist. The most recent happened in 2004. All were inconclusive. In other words, we'll likely never know. But for our purposes, it matters more that people thought Rasputin was a Clist than whether he actually was. Calling someone a Clist in the 18th and 19th century Russia was like calling someone a communist in the 1950s United States. It was a catch-all term, a way to malign and discredit a person. And the nobility were especially keen to discredit Rasputin. He was this primitive peasant who had access to the Tsar himself. It wasn't so much that people disliked Rasputin because he was thought to be a Clist. Rather, they called him a Clist because they disliked him. Scandals and conspiracy theories about the supposed holy man sold papers. The idea that he was controlling the royal Romanov family was so pervasive that petitioners actually believed he lived with them. They wrote letters to Rasputin, Tsar's Palace, St. Petersburg. It made the Romanovs look like puppets at best, or in league with demonic forces at worst. Tsar Nicholas's mother wrote, My poor daughter-in-law does not perceive that she is ruining the dynasty and herself. She sincerely believes in the holiness of an adventurer, and we are powerless to ward off the misfortune, which is sure to come. Rasputin effectively united Nicholas and Alexandra's enemies against them. Their ongoing relationship with the Mad Monk, as he was called, turned the monarchy into a running joke. But the couple kept writing Rasputin letters and inviting him to the palace. It's near unthinkable that a peasant from Siberia could really hold sway over the Empress of Russia. But Rasputin had one skill that allowed him to gain and keep his influence. Allegedly, he had the gift of healing, a gift the Tsar's family desperately needed. Nicholas and Alexandra surely knew about his reputation, and they needed a miracle. Alexei Romanov, the Tsar's fifth child and long-awaited heir, suffered from hemophilia. 
As we discussed last episode, Rasputin treated three-year-old Alexei in 1907 after the young prince fell in the royal palace's garden. Allegedly, Rasputin prayed over the boy all night, and come morning, Alexei's swelling vanished. It was like he'd never been injured in the first place. Five years later, the family vacationed at a villa nestled deep in the forest. Alexei, now eight, was recovering from a recent injury, but he went on a carriage ride. The bumpy road irritated his ailment, and Alexei began screaming in pain. His mother turned the carriage around, but it was too late. Over the next ten days, Alexei's condition worsened. His abdomen and groin swelled with blood from his internal injuries. He cried so loudly that the servants put cotton in their ears, and Tsar Nicholas couldn't stand to be in the sick room. The doctors couldn't do anything, and even Alexei knew he was dying. In desperation, Alexandra wrote to Rasputin. Rasputin replied immediately, promising Alexei would survive. His telegram relieved Alexandra's fears. Meanwhile, the doctors toiled and scrambled to treat Alexei, seemingly in vain. But the Tsarina's trust in Rasputin was stronger than the evidence before her eyes. Less than two days later, Alexandra's faith was rewarded. The boy's bleeding stopped. Those close to the family debated about how Rasputin had managed to predict the spontaneous recovery. But Alexandra fully believed that God had given Rasputin mystical knowledge and answered his prayers for a remedy. This idea of faith healing is well established in the Christian tradition. According to the New Testament, Jesus gave sight to a blind man, cured a woman of her internal bleeding, and even brought a man back from the dead. The Bible records more miracles that Jesus' followers allegedly performed after his death and resurrection. These were the apostles, holy men with direct access to God, who made disabled men walk, cast out demons, and raised people from the dead. Their ability to heal was a result of their faith. And remember, Rasputin was famous for his devotion to God. He'd lived as a pilgrim for over five years, traveling thousands of miles on foot to visit monasteries and other holy sites. If you accept that a devout Christian can heal through their conviction, then Rasputin sounds like a natural candidate as a faith healer. But here's the thing. Rasputin never healed Alexei's underlying hemophilia, just its symptoms. While the boy didn't die from his injuries, his disorder persisted throughout his tragically short life. Granted, there's no rule book for faith healing, but you'd think that if early Christians could raise the dead back to life, Rasputin should have been able to cure hemophilia. Instead, Rasputin may have treated Alexei without resorting to supernatural abilities. He often performed his alleged healings in private, which meant Rasputin kept the boy away from his meddling doctors. And given the state of medical science at the turn of the century, Alexei was probably better off without his physician's attention. Aspirin, invented in 1899, was considered a wonder drug. It's very likely that Alexei's physicians prescribed it to him. 
But medical professionals at the time didn't realize that aspirin had a side effect. It worked as a blood thinner, meaning the remedy probably made Alexei's bleeding worse. According to French historian Hélène Carrard-Dancous, on one occasion, Rasputin ordered that all of Alexei's prescriptions be thrown into a fire. If those prescriptions included aspirin, Rasputin may have saved the prince from further injury. Alexei may have also benefited from the placebo effect, a phenomenon in which a sick person gets better because they think they received real treatment. You might take sugar pills or practice a useless technique, then get better simply because you expected to. It's the power of positive thinking in action. And Tsarina Alexandra trusted the holy man. Her doctors were often the bearers of bad news, while Rasputin regularly reassured her that Alexei would be okay. When he prayed, he lent a calming atmosphere to the house. Medical evidence supports the theory that a subdued environment could have helped Alexei. In 2011, researchers from The Ohio State University found that wounded patients with lower levels of psychological stress healed faster than their more distressed peers. Of course, nobody conducted clinical tests on Rasputin's alleged faith healings. We can't prove that his actions had any impact whatsoever on Alexei's health. For all we know, Rasputin was in the right place at the right time. Maybe Alexei's injuries were always going to stop bleeding on their own. But Rasputin got the credit anyway. Real or imagined, Rasputin's impact on Alexei endeared him to the royal couple. But his healing ability still doesn't fully explain his influence over them. Rasputin was well acquainted with the palace before Alexei took his first major tumble. The Tsar and Tsarina were already in the habit of listening to Rasputin talk for hours. Well before he proved his worth with his alleged healings, Rasputin offered Nicholas his support and encouragement. And the Tsar needed it. He lacked confidence, and his indecisiveness impeded his ability to rule. Rasputin, on the other hand, was strong-willed and refused to bend to anyone. It's possible Alexandra hoped that the holy man would be a positive influence on Nicholas. Unfortunately, she was wrong. Rasputin wielded a lot of power, appointing ministers, advising the czars, and helping direct troops during World War I. And his advice was frequently off-base. Thanks in part to his bad recommendations, as many as four million Russians died in the conflict. So perhaps Rasputin wasn't supernaturally wise or divinely inspired. His natural charisma, coupled with his calming abilities and the placebo effect, made him seem a lot more accomplished than he really was. Possibly he was an ordinary man who just lucked into a position of power. But maybe luck had nothing to do with it. Perhaps Rasputin intentionally manipulated the czars for his own greedy purposes. Coming up, we'll hear about Rasputin's supposed powers, including hypnotism and mind reading. Now back to the story. From around 1905, 
Until his death in 1916, Grigory Rasputin held immense influence over the Tsars Nicholas and Alexandra. They stood by him, even when rumors and gossip undermined his credibility. He even got credit for allegedly curing Prince Alexei's hemophilia-related injuries, although it's possible Rasputin didn't actually do anything to help the boy. But there may have been more to the Tsar's loyalty than mere appreciation. One theory suggests that Rasputin and Alexandra were in love. By 1915, soldiers on World War I's Eastern Front joked about Rasputin and Alexandra's alleged sexual affair. They weren't the only ones. It was openly discussed all over Russia. A peasant soldier named Larkin explained the relationship between Rasputin and Alexandra, stating, They say he's good with the women, and the Tsarina, she's a woman too. She needs it, but her man is away at the front. And Rasputin did have a reputation for being sexually active. According to rumors, he regularly visited brothels and belonged to that promiscuous religious sect called the Clists. There were even accusations of sexual assault that dogged him throughout his public life. So it's hard to ignore the possibility that he was sleeping with the Tsarina. Alexandra even gave him shirts that she'd sewn herself, an apparent sign of her favor. What's more, she sent intimate, seemingly suggestive letters to Rasputin that were later published in the press. Alexandra wrote, Will you soon be here near me? Come soon. I am waiting for you and am miserable without you. Give me your holy blessing, and I kiss your blessed hands, loving you for all times. Mama. This might sound damning, but we should note that in early 20th century Russia, kissing carried very different connotations than it does in the United States today. A smooch, even on the lips, was a platonic way for friends to greet one another. Russian author Fyodor Dostoevsky once wrote, Kissing is a habit of the Russian people when they become famous. So, Alexandra's letter about wanting to kiss Rasputin's hands, it was just a colorful way of saying she couldn't wait to see him again. So it's possible her affection was romantic, but it's just as likely she saw him only as a trusted friend. And that trust was unshakable. Maybe it was because Rasputin genuinely helped the royal family, soothing Alexei, encouraging Nicholas, and potentially satisfying Alexandra. But it's also possible that the source of Rasputin's power was darker, supernatural even. Rasputin made startling first impressions. His strange presence and his striking eyes attracted the empress but repelled many. Some proclaimed he had the power of hypnotism and could read minds. It's said that his intense green eyes could put people under his thrall. Upon meeting Rasputin, Lydia Basilevskaya, a 28-year-old divorcee, said, his eyes pierced you like needles. Rasputin's friend, Nikolai Solovyov, told the press, the charm lies in his eyes. There's something in them that draws you in and forces you to submit to his will. 
there's something psychologically inexplicable in all this. In Rasputin, Faith, Power, and the Twilight of the Romanovs, author Douglas Smith detailed several instances in which Rasputin unsettled men and women merely by looking at them. On one occasion, a Polish countess screamed, I can't handle those eyes. They see everything. I can't take it. Eliodor, the monk who went from Rasputin's close ally to a violent enemy, argued that electricity ran through Rasputin's hands and eyes, and he wasn't speaking metaphorically. He believed Rasputin had a mystical ability to hypnotize people against their will. Many of Rasputin's opponents claimed that he tried to mesmerize them, but failed. They emphasized Rasputin's power, but they were always careful to note that as men of strong will, they were able to overcome his influence. Politician Alexei Kvostov wrote that Rasputin tried to hypnotize him in his office the first time they met. Later, he backtracked his claims, saying Rasputin affixed him with an intense gaze, but that maybe the monk was just studying him closely. The Russian magazine Little Flame printed a photograph of Rasputin sitting in a chair across from one of his wealthy female acolytes. He was waving a hand in front of her face, his eyes glowing as she stared back at him vacantly, like she was under his spell. But Rasputin's powers went beyond possible hypnotism. He also claimed he had the ability to read minds. An early example comes from 1907, when the noble Elian family invited Rasputin into their home. They weren't in the habit of eating with peasants, and Rasputin confirmed every negative stereotype they had with his horrible manners. He even combed his beard at the table. The Ilians didn't know what to make of Rasputin, and he stirred the pot, announcing that God had given him the ability to read minds. He proved it by evaluating their daughter's art teacher. Rasputin said that the teacher was a sinner and always started projects but never finished them. The Ilians had all noticed the teacher's tendency to leave work unfinished, and they couldn't imagine how Rasputin knew that unless he had mind-reading abilities. And as outlandish as that may seem, the Ilian family weren't the only ones who suspected Rasputin had occult powers. In early 20th century Europe, nobles and peasants alike took part in seances. Some engaged with it for pure entertainment, while others genuinely wanted to talk to the dead. Even scientists and thinkers were interested. Arthur Conan Doyle, the author of the Sherlock Holmes mysteries, was passionate about spiritualism. So was Dmitri Mendeleev, the chemist who gave us the periodic table of elements. The Romanovs were also intrigued. Well before they met Rasputin, the Tsar and Tsarina embraced various mediums and soothsayers. One of these was the French magician Philippe, whom we talked about last episode. They also admired a holy fool known as Mitya, the nasal voice, Kozelski. Mitya was unable to speak, but made unintelligible sounds which a helper interpreted into prophecies. Mitya was quite successful in the Russian court. That is, 
until Rasputin eclipsed him. At the time, mysticism was a handy explanation for Rasputin's capabilities. But there are a few glaring problems with this theory. First, Rasputin himself admitted he couldn't hypnotize anyone. He claimed he didn't know how to, saying he'd never been trained. As for that picture of Rasputin allegedly hypnotizing a woman? Fake. Rasputin wrote a letter in the Petersburg newspaper denouncing it as a hoax. In any case, it's more likely that Rasputin used a technique that psychics and mediums often use. It's called cold reading. Essentially, they make assumptions about their clients based on educated guesses and the traits they observe. If a psychic can make enough correct predictions in a row, it will seem like something supernatural is going on. Rasputin's time on the road would have given him ample opportunity to hone his powers of observation. He had to rely on strangers for food and shelter. He needed to know at a glance who was likely to welcome a beggar and who would turn him away or mistreat him. He would have learned to recognize grief, guilt, and generosity in other people. And through trial and error, he likely honed his ability to say just what people wanted to hear. This makes sense, given that Rasputin himself claimed he could read minds. But if he really had that ability, he should have never gone to the Yusupov Palace with the man who planned to kill him. Coming up, we'll discuss Rasputin's mysterious death. Now, back to the story. Rasputin's alleged abilities made him controversial in his own time. And even today, historians aren't sure how he seemingly healed people and read minds. But perhaps the strangest thing about Rasputin was his death. No one's sure exactly how it happened. What we do know is that it was planned by Prince Felix Yusupov, the husband of Tsar Nicholas's niece, who, like many Russians, wanted Rasputin dead. And most of what we know is taken from Yusupov's memoirs. On the night of December 29, 1916, Rasputin accompanied Yusupov to the Yusupov family palace in St. Petersburg. There he ate several cakes and drank glasses of wine, all of which had been laced with cyanide. But when Rasputin ate the desserts and drank the wine, the poison had no effect on him. Yusupov and his accomplices then shot at Rasputin, but he allegedly survived several gunshot wounds before succumbing. Then, his killers bound his wrists and threw him into the Malaya Nivka River. His body was found two days later, but for some reason his hands were untied. It was as if he wriggled out of his bindings while injured, unconscious, and submerged in icy water, which sounds impossible. Naturally, there are many theories surrounding Rasputin's murder. We're going to look at several of them. The first set of theories has to do with how Rasputin survived the cyanide. One is that he prepared for it by building an immunity to poison. A couple of years before his murder, Rasputin survived a different assassination attempt. And given the vicious rumors that swirled around him, Rasputin probably knew he had other deadly enemies. 
With that in mind, he may have suspected that someone someday was going to poison him. Rasputin could have regularly ingested small amounts of poison, not enough to kill him, but enough for his body to develop a natural resistance. This practice can help a person survive otherwise lethal doses of snake venom and opiates. But it actually doesn't explain Rasputin's survival, because it's impossible to build a natural tolerance to cyanide. Instead, Rasputin may have had alcoholic gastritis, a condition that makes the stomach produce less acid, meaning it can't digest food as easily. And if cyanide doesn't dissolve in the stomach, it's not as deadly. It's also possible that Yusupov and his friends only thought they'd poisoned the cakes and wines. Maybe they accidentally bought an inert substance instead of cyanide tablets. Or maybe the drug was old and had decayed into something less toxic. Still, Yusupov was adamant that Rasputin consumed a lot of poison. Then there's the theories about whether or not Rasputin actually died from his gunshot wounds. If his wrists were no longer tied when his body was found, then it seems possible that he actually died from drowning. This would mean Rasputin managed to struggle out of his bindings while he was submerged. It sounds like the work of an escape artist, but as far as we know, Rasputin never studied escape artistry. However, adrenaline can spur people to do incredible things. Ordinary men and women have lifted cars with their bare hands, fought off wild animals twice their size, and run grueling distances without stopping. The phenomenon is called hysterical strength, and it's not too difficult to believe that Rasputin might have worked his way loose from his bindings before he died. And remember, Yusupov and his friends weren't experienced killers. They were probably rattled from the failed poison, and they may have done a poor job of tying Rasputin's body up, leaving the knots loose. So it's possible that when an injured Rasputin plummeted into the icy Malaya-Nivka River, the shock of the frigid water woke him just long enough to scramble out of his bindings, but he eventually succumbed to drowning. However, the surgeon conducting the autopsy contradicted this. He didn't find any water in Rasputin's lungs, which means Rasputin died before he landed in the river. None of this adds up. But there may be a simple explanation. It's that most of the story, the poisoning, the shooting, the miraculous recoveries, was all made up. The only first-hand account we have comes from Yusupov, the murderer's ringleader. Yusupov wrote his memoirs in 1927, at a time when he needed money. His family had lost everything in the revolution. Yusupov could have easily used his notoriety as Rasputin's murderer to support his family. What's more, his account comes across as self-justification and self-glorification. He didn't just invite another man over for dinner and then kill him. He was a force of good, conquering an almost unbeatable evil. He could have easily embellished how hard it was to kill Rasputin in order to emphasize his own image. Not to mention, Yusupov probably knew that a flashier account of Rasputin's death would sell more copies. 
Unfortunately, the official autopsy report disappeared from its archive some years after Rasputin's murder. And Rasputin's body was exhumed and burned shortly after burial. However, Dr. Dmitry Kasaratov, the city's senior surgeon, did give an extended interview about the autopsy in 1917, the year after Rasputin's death. He confirmed that Rasputin was shot three times. One bullet pierced the left side of his chest and hit his stomach and right kidney. The second entered Rasputin's back and lodged in his spinal column. Kasoratov said those injuries wouldn't have killed Rasputin immediately, but he wouldn't have survived long without treatment. But the third bullet definitely seemed fatal. It was lodged in Rasputin's forehead, shot at close range. That almost certainly killed him. Kasaratov also reconfirmed that there was no water in Rasputin's lungs or sign of poison. But he doesn't seem to have mentioned the wrist bindings. In any case, Yusupov's version has lived on as the most famous version of Rasputin's death. And it makes sense considering Rasputin's overall reputation. He was a remarkable person, restless, intense, and passionate. The stuff of folklore. Even after his death, everyone from peasant women in the fields to nobles in salons or troops on the Eastern Front spread the tall tales about Rasputin. No matter how perverse or bizarre the story, when it came to this one man, anything seemed credible. Even if he died of a simple bullet to the head, the legend of Rasputin has, in fact, been impossible to kill. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We will be back on Tuesday with a new episode. For more information on Rasputin, amongst the many sources we used, we found Rasputin, Faith, Power, and the Twilight of the Romanovs by Douglas Smith extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Unexplained Mysteries for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Unexplained Mysteries on Spotify, just open the app and type Unexplained Mysteries in the search bar. And remember, never take We Don't Know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Amy Carver, with writing assistance by Ali Wicker, and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed these episodes and want to hear more, remember to follow Unexplained Mysteries free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes air every Tuesday and Thursday.